This episode of The Outcast is brought to you by the LA Times podcast, The Trials of Frank Carson, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast provider. Hi, I'm Dave Kittredge, filmmaker in Los Angeles, and this is The Outcast, presented by Outfest, where we have conversations with LGBT creators and allies to discuss their work, their inspirations, their passions, and the challenges of getting our authentic voices heard. And today, I'm chatting with an award-winning Filipino filmmaker who is the first trans filmmaker to have a film at the Venice Film Festival with her acclaimed film, Lingua Franca, which is now on Netflix. Her two other acclaimed features, Senorita and Apparition, are on Criterion Channel. I am so thrilled to have her on the Outcast. Please welcome Isabel Sandoval. Welcome. Hi, Dave. I'm so thrilled and excited to be here. And thank you for having me on the Outcast. I'm thrilled to talk to you. We can just start at the beginning. You were born in Cebu City? Correct. Philippines. When did you move to New York? I moved to New York about 15 years ago. Um, 2006, I moved to New York for grad school. Um, I've said before that I did not go to film school. Um, so in undergrad, I studied psychology. Um, and then after that, I worked for a year in Manila. I was doing brand management for um, Unilever. And then I moved to New York to pursue an MBA at NYU. An MBA. Oh my God. Like, and, and that's, <laughs> and, and the NYU MBA program is pretty intense. Yeah. Um, it's one of the top programs in the country, but then I also had a few elective courses. And so I used those to, um, go to Tisch, which is like the film school at NYU. And I, it's my alma mater. Text some producing classes. Oh, great. <laughs> so your first film, Senorita, that was a short before it was a feature, right? Yes. It was a short before feature. When did you make the short? I made the short, I think about a year or two after um, getting my um, MBA. I was working for a queer media company at that time. I was a marketing manager. But, you know, ever since I was a kid, I was always been um, in love with the movies. I was a cinephile. And very early on, I realized I was creative. And specifically, I would come up with these edited scenes and scenarios in my mind so i felt like i was naturally a film editor in that sense um and that's how i expressed myself creatively um but it really took me a while to decide that pursuing filmmaking would be you know a smart decision to do it's never a smart decision really i mean <laughs> i mean it's hurt, like for you it was i mean for most people it's like you know i mean one of the things i noticed just to, as, as a little bit of a side note is it's really amazing to see your growth as an artist and a filmmaker especially visually especially Thank the way you. that you tell stories visually because you know, just to go over your 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 body of work, you have Senorita in 2011, which you were in, which is mm -hmm. really a little bit of a miracle. I mean, this film is obviously a very low budget film, but yeah. the thing moves and it and it operates in unexpected ways. And I was I didn't know what to expect. I just sat down. I literally knew nothing about it. Um, I just ended that. I, when I finished, I was like, "That was a that was a little miracle." That movie, that was amazing. What you managed to pull off with that, uh, and then Apparition, which you were not in, but was more yeah. visually. You move the camera more, and it's like there's mm -hmm. there's more of a visual bent to it. And then Lingua Franca, which is an astonishingly visual movie. It is so tactile and lush and gorgeous. 
Um, and and then you know to, beyond that, you made a short film for the Mew Mew Brand um, for their their series. Um, uh, it's not, what is it called? Women make movies. I forget. Shangri-La. Yeah. Um, well, women's, women's tales. tales. Women's tales. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, and that's like beyond visual. That's 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 impre- Like that is like it's shot on a soundstage, and it's like a fantasy. It's ten minutes long, and and it, if anybody's interested, and you should uh, go check it out on YouTube. It's on the Mew Mew uh, YouTube page. It's amazing. Um, but going back to the beginning, Senorita, you're starring in it. You're directing it. Um, you have obviously a very low budget. Like that must have been terrifying. Yeah, um, but. You know, what's fascinating, I think, about me as an artist is that whenever I take on a project and this escalates with each new project that I take on, like I, I love taking risks, you know, and being adventurous. And I think and also being very ambitious, like with Senorita, I just like in Lingua Franca, I took on multiple roles. Um, I wrote the script, I directed and I played the lead despite never having acted before and did not go, go to film school or acting school. And I also played a trans woman before I you know, realized I was trans and transitioned. Um, and so, like you said, it really was quite a miracle um, in that we not only we were, were we able to pull it off, uh, myself and my cast and crew, but that it wasn't a disaster or a complete... <laughs> mess you know because it could have easily have gone that way um when i shot the film i was already based in the u.s i had a good friend and producer who did all the development and the pre-production work in the philippines and i really literally flew to the philippines two weeks before we started shooting oh my god that's amazing and we shot that film in 15 days with only like you shot that film in 15 days yes that's Okay, that's I, I. I know that most of our listeners will not have seen Senorita, but mm-hmm. I don't even know how you did that because that's. I mean, you know, th- that's really something. This is a very plot-driven film. Mm-hmm. It's very like deliberately paced and very. But but the plot runs like a freight train. Like every scene pushes the plot forward. It's like it never yeah. ever like lets up until that last scene, which is on the edge of your seat stuff. I mean, it's a great little movie. Um, and you know, one of the things we talked to a lot of independent filmmakers on the outcast, and I've, I've certainly known a lot of independent filmmakers mm-hmm. in my life and worked on yeah. a lot of independent productions. <laughs> and you get asked this question by people who kind of want to do directing, um, or, or want to get into the film world. Like, how do I do it? How do I do it? How do I, you know, make this movie? And, you know, from now on, honestly, Senorita is going to be one of those movies. I'm like, you should watch this movie because this is somebody who took, I, I don't know what your budget was. I cannot imagine it was much, um, but it is so well thought out and so contained. It's really something. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, we shot it for a 30 K. Uh, oh no! Oh god! Which you know goes a long way in the Philippines. <laughs> all of us in LA, we're all like, "Oh, we can't get this made. We can't get that made." Every filmmaker I know has like seven projects, and it's like you know, you're just like, "Oh yeah, I shot this little minor, like little miracle movie for 30k." It's just like, damn. Yeah. This is the kind of stuff we need. I mean, honestly, like this kind of risk-taking cinema. But I want to go back to mm-hmm. you know, and and I'm gonna speak as a cisgendered male and trying not to be a dumbass asking these questions, mm-hmm. uh, which I often am. So you can tell me. I'm a dumbass and I won't take it personally. (laughs) 
you were credited as your birth name on Senorita, mm-hmm. but you were playing a trans woman. And I read in an interview that one of the reasons you did this was to figure out within yourself mm-hmm. if if this is who you were. That's right. Um, yeah, around, you know, I, I think three years after I moved to New York, that was when I encountered on YouTube all you know, these different trans people who were chronicling and documenting their own transition journey on, you know, hormone replacement therapy yeah. on YouTube. Yeah, you know, I, they each of them had like their own dedicated YouTube channels and they would put out these videos of them um, on HRT or hormone replacement therapy at like a month or two months and six months. Just um, discussing the changes they were experiencing on hormones um, and it's physical, emotional, psychological changes. And you know, it's a very fascinating uh, survey and in terms of diversity, because these are marketing people or writers, people who work at nonprofits, some have their own, are married and have children. Right. And I realized that I was at that point already asking myself the questions that these people, these trans people were grappling with um, and discussing and sharing with an audience. And that's when I started seriously asking myself whether I was trans. And that was also the time that I decided to finally take the plunge and make films. And one of the most influential films that pushed me to not just make a film, but also act in it was uh, Clute. Really? That's so so interesting that you say that because I literally, when you were in Senorita, when you, because you play Mm -hmm. uh, uh, an escort, you play a prostitute. um, And some of the conversations you had, I was like, I literally was like, this is straight out of Clute. This is like Jane Fonda as Brie. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And yeah, I decided to write Senorita and I wrote a trans woman character as a way to, you know, inhabit that role and use a fictional character and a fictional narrative to kind of investigate, as you mentioned, within myself, whether I was in fact trans and lo and behold, <laughs> at the end of, just because when I was shooting it, I I knew I was not only just playing a trans woman, but she leads a double life yes. in that sense. And so it's complex in that it there's a Madonna whore dynamic. But it's um, also but it's also about power. I mean, one of the things, and it's so exactly. interesting that you're bringing up Clute, and it's so interesting also that this film coincided so completely with you discovering yourself to be trans or, or ad- admitting or identifying that you were trans and taking that plunge. So literally you you had graduated from NYU business school <laughs> and you then were like, not only am I just gonna make films, I'm gonna make films with my life, I'm also a trans woman. That is a huge, I mean, was that one year? I mean, that's a year for the books if that, if that was. Totally, I, I didn't realize until after the fact you know, what kind of <laughs> crazy <laughs> shit I pulled making Senorita. But then I actually did not start opening up about being trans and starting my transition journey until after I shot my second feature apparition. So mm-hmm. shortly after that, I quietly, you know, I, I went to a psychologist and an endocrinologist and I started my HRT. Did you do officially. that in the United States? I did, okay. yeah. Um, I don't think, you know, if I'd stay in the Philippines, to be honest, I don't think I would have 
realize I was trans, let alone start transitioning, just because in a culture and society like the Philippines, which is not nearly as progressive and liberal as it is here in the US. I mean, granted, of course, there are red states and blue states, but I think in terms of its conservatism, you know, being queer in the Philippines is like being queer in Mississippi. Right. Does that go back to religion? Yes, we are 95% Catholic. So it's a predominantly Catholic country. One of, I think it's the only one that's predominantly Catholic in Asia. And so we're neurotic about gender and sexuality back home. I want to go back to Brie from Clute. And mm-hmm. because the thing with Brie from Clute, it was about power. It was about a woman doing sex work and finding her own power and her own identity in doing that sex work, which in 1971, mm-hmm. when that movie came out, was an enormously like um, like different and provocative kind of stance. It's really interesting when you look at your character in Senorita um, because she does find power in doing this sex work and in, in, in her double life. Because you know the, the the basic plot of Senorita is you know this woman who does sex work and one of her clients is this kind of mobster dude, um, yeah, who is co- fixing a local election, and um, you know she is in her other life in her normal quote unquote normal like you know standard life that people see. Mm-hmm. Um, she's helping out the opposition. She's helping out the person running for mayor, uh, who's a nice doctor who wants to play by the rules. And, you know, it's, it's also a very interesting tale because like the the whole movie is like, if he plays by the rules, he'll lose. If he plays by the rules, he'll lose. And you, I'm not going to say what happens, but Mm -hmm. that question is left ambiguous by the end of this as to where you as a filmmaker are stand about the ends justifying the means, which I found really fascinating. Mm. It kind of like, you know, walked that kind of line between David Mamet, where the ends always justify the means, and like, you know, the, yeah. the, the, you know, the idealists who think that it never justifies the means. I think this is a th- common theme um, across all my features in that they're fundamentally treat- treatises on power. Um, and, you know, that concept of power and privilege was very much on my mind, um, weighing whether I wanted to transition because like, I think my status and identity in a country like the Philippines or even to some extent in the US, like when you're no longer cisgender for one, you know, in terms of privilege, that's, it's like giving up the privilege that you have from being cisgender. Well, and, and also from and, being a man. And also male. Yeah, I was just going to say that's a exactly. huge that's a huge deal uh you know and I've heard trans women talk about that a lot that like in, in a kind of a patriarchal or patriarchal bent society that's like the biggest heresy you can do. Exactly. And I think the reason why that story the senorita story was what my subconscious came up with is because that was what I was wrestling the 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 fear of relinquishing the power and the privilege that I had, you know, being cisgender and male if I decided to transition. And this is a narrative of her in her own subversive way, you know, taking back and snatching back that power in her interesting dynamic with her client. So it's kind of like societal power 
of, of, of masculinity of being a man versus your own personal identity and the power that that comes, which is, I would, you know, I, I would imagine, I can't say, is a much more subtle and foundational power. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's interesting because when I was coming up with the story of Senorita, you know, like 10, 11 years ago, I wasn't, you know, consciously thinking of those themes of power and privilege and how what's at stake for me when I transitioned, that this was something I kind of realized after the fact, you know, years after and when I was done transitioning. And yeah. Well, you're in the eye of the hurricane. I mean, you can't know everything that's, that's happening. I mean, because you, you were living it, you were swimming in it, like, you know, to, to give up that kind of a quote unquote societal power and and Mm -hmm. to be the person that you are, that is one of the most, one of the hugest things that anybody can do. And I'm glad that, you know, I did Senorita. It was something that I needed to deal with and get out of my system. And I think, you know, if I had done Senorita, I would not have transitioned, you know, afterwards. That's, I mean, and and that makes that film, I think, even more resonant. And now I want people to see it even more. So it's on Criterion Channel. Please go see it. It's really, really good. Um, but yeah. let, let's move on to Apparition, because that's a very interesting mm-hmm. film, too. You made that this, the next year. Now, Senorita did well on the festival circuit, right? It got it got played a mm-hmm. bunch of places. It won, it won a couple yeah. of awards. Um, mm-hmm. Apparition, you're not in it. Um, but you are now, and I want to bring this up, you're now editing, which you've done yeah. for every one of your films since mm-hmm. Senorita. You did not edit Senorita, but you've edited everything else, which is a whole nother, as an editor myself, that's a whole nother thing that we can talk about because that's yeah. a whole nother third of the production process that people don't, right. people generally think you shoot a movie and oh, there's the movie, but no, no, it's like there's a whole third of it left to go. A third of it is writing, third of it is produ- production, and then the whole third of it in post-production putting it together, which is yeah. its own journey. But tell me, tell me about Apparition, how you, how you came up with that and, and, uh, how you shot it. Yeah. When I was in high school, I was part of this film club called Richie Club. Um, it was run by a Jesuit brother. Um, I, you know, from grades, from kindergarten really to high school, I went to a Filipino Chinese Catholic school run by Jesuits. And so, yeah, for that film club, we were screening Chinese films that were banned from mainland China. And one of the films that we saw was Raise the Red Lantern by Tong Yimou. Oh, such a good movie. Yeah. And, and I was just so fascinated by, again, these power dynamics between all these, you know, wives by this Chinese Chinese master set in 19th century. And it was in one location. It was just a whole compound. And I wanted, you know, I was inspired by that setup. And... One incident that was that left quite an indelible impression on me as like a four year old four year old was this image of Filipina nuns marching in the streets um, in the People Power Revolution of 1986 in Manila in the Philippines, and this was to um, a protest against then Philippine President Ferdinand Marcos mm-hmm. and his dictatorship, and these nuns were you know, marching in the streets, they took the lead and they faced down these tanks with Philippine soldiers, offered them flowers. And I was just thinking, like, how did these nuns, because, you know, the image I was accustomed to 
of nuns were that they were very docile and they told the line. Passive. They were yeah, exactly. Yeah. And subservient. And how do they go from that point A to point B where they're militant and activist? And so that's the story of apparition is my kind of fictional take on that, on their burgeoning political consciousness and activism. So yeah, it's a combination of those things, like Race the Red Lantern, the picture of those nuns, and I came up with Apparition. And another theme that is consistent through my films is um, the presence of Catholicism, <laughs> um, Catholic rituals. And, you know, since I went to a Catholic school, it was very much an influence in me. When I was in second grade, until the fifth grade, I was an altar boy. <laughs> oh yeah, there was that. There was that story in um, what was it in Lingua uh, Franca? It was in Lingua Franca, right? Where they were talking yeah. about being altar boys, and I was like, "That's that's that's funny because you do." I feel like you do insert these things about your life that I've read. I've read stuff about your life, and I see it in the movies. Like, in fact, at, at one point in Lingua Franca, they're giving fake names to each other, and the name you give is Isabel, which, of course, like, I saw yeah. that. I was like, oh, well, you know, this is another personal touch. I mean, they're, they're littered throughout your films. These are very personal works. And, you know, like, I have since come to have an ambivalent relationship <laughs> with um, religious institutions, especially Catholicism. And that's most apparent here right. in Apparition, where you know it's also kind of a critique on um, the hypocrisy of oh, it's very much a religious critique. institutions. It's, it's, in fact, yeah. you, were, you were telling that story about nuns kind of taking to the streets. And I was like, is this, this is kind of almost like, except for the one character, this is almost the opposite of that. This is the nuns who, mm -hmm. who kind of, generally speaking, don't do the right thing, except yeah. our, 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 our main character, Remy, Sister Remy, yeah. Because they're in the convent and their whole bent is, you know, poverty, of course, and, and seclusion and prayer. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And as and it takes place in 1971. I should take a step back. Um, and Ferdinand Marcos is, uh, is he in power? Did he just take power? He became president in 1965 and he declared martial law in 1972. So the apparition is set about nine, ten months before that moment, that declaration. And right. that's where it actually, where Apparition concludes, the the scene where... Yes. Renan and Marcos And it's on the radio. Yeah, he declares martial law on yeah. the radio at the very end of the film. Not really a spoiler. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Basically, it's these nuns trying to figure out, and the Mother Superior in particular, trying to figure out how, if action is warranted, what does mm -hmm. God... Basically, what does God want from us Mm -hmm. as servants of 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 Christ. Yeah. And 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 that's the the question and you do this in I think all of your work you don't really answer the question directly in the sense that you leave it ambiguous and the audience is left to kind of wrestle with this. Um although in Apparition I will say it's a little more clear than the other two films because in Apparition I yeah. I feel like you're you're pretty confident that <laughs> doing nothing yeah. was not the right thing to do. <laughs> um but it's a lovely movie. You shot it on the Canon C300 for all the film geeks yes. out there. Basically, the Canon C300 was this uh, camera, or it still is this camera, that mm -hmm. uh, changed the game a lot for independent filmmaking for uh, for a, certainly for a few years. It's still out mm -hmm. there. It's not used quite as much, um, but it's still a really good camera. Um, and mm -hmm. you got fantastic results from this camera. Um, the, it's a very tactile, emotional, visual style. And again, another step up from the visual look of Senorita, mm -hmm. which was much more kind of like 
it, it was digital, but it was like it was very like kind of grungy in a way, um, which worked very well for the you know for the story you were telling. Uh, this is much more immaculate. You know, you're talking about yeah. nuns. You might as well be immaculate. Um, but the colors, it's it's a very luscious movie. Definitely, and you know that was kind of my main goal after Senorita because I felt like with Senorita the camera was just there. You know, right. it was. It felt to me like a filmed stage play in some sense. You're being um, a little hard to yourself. I I think it's a bit better. <laughs> I think it's a bit more visual okay. than that. <laughs> but but um, but you do but you do I, you're right. You, I mean, in Senorita, you do kind of put the camera. It's it's relatively locked down. Uh, mm-hmm. but it, it's, I mean, the story is so compelling. I don't know if you needed any kind of crazy camera moves or anything, but, but in apparition, you, you are absolutely more comfortable with the camera and you can feel it. Yeah. And I really wanted to use the camera this time as an instrument for visual storytelling, which right. I did not get to do with Senorita. I thought in order to do that, I don't want to act this time. You know, I just kind of want to get my footing as a visual storyteller. And so, you know, it's interesting that you made an observation that over the course of my three films, it just it's becoming more confidently visual. And I'd say that my growth and evolution as a filmmaker is synonymous with my growth growing confidence um as a visual storyteller and stylist for sure and i think also over these three films i'm becoming less and less reliant on dialogue um, Mm -hmm. for exposition Mm -hmm. and i'm really just using you know the image and the sound design for instance like the images especially in lingua franca the way you know, we light mm-hmm. the characters and the setting, you know, the framing and how the camera moves is as much, you know, is as expository as what the characters actually say mm-hmm. to each other. And the sound design in Lingua Franca, I do want to bring up also, was really mm-hmm. subtle and lovely and evocative. Thank you. And yeah, one of the most important things that I learned, um, especially after having made Lingua Franca, is that I... You know, I've been wanting to be seen and regarded as an auteur. And to me, that's not just about making a quote unquote good movie that, you know, satisfies or follows what we consider the conventional rules of good filmmaking. It's about having a unique sensibility um, as a storyteller. And you can accomplish that primarily, you know, like through your image and your sound. And it's about creating and curating an emotional experience for the audience that's really singular and unique and you know different from what other filmmakers are doing like when we think of Wong Kar Wai films you know we don't necessarily just describe the plot you know or the characters but we describe how his films make us feel um and the colors and I think exactly you know like there's not in the mood for love, you know, we think of heartbreak and melancholy, but that's so exquisite and sumptuous and um, lush. And that's what I'm trying to kind of create with my own work as well, um, with Lingo Franca. Like, for example, you know, how it's shot, it's also showcasing a side of New York that is not usually seen or on film or shown that way. Um, mm-hmm. And also in terms of its sound design, it's a lot quieter and more intimate than what you'd expect a story 
that's on paper should be more gritty, you know, right. to sound like set in New York. The Trials of Frank Carson is a new LA Times true crime podcast from the reporter behind Dirty John and Detective Trap. A defense attorney in Stanislaus County, Frank Carson was famously known for his caustic behavior towards authority as he relentlessly fought against a system he felt was broken. But everything changed when he became rapidly entangled in a mess of a murder, one that named him as the prime suspect. Listen and subscribe now to The Trials of Frank Carson on latimes.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast provider. to know more about Outfest? Of course you do. You're listening to this podcast. Outfest is the only LGBTQIA arts, media, and entertainment nonprofit organization in the world whose programs empower artists, communities, and filmmakers alike to transform the world through their stories while also supporting the entire life cycle of their career from outset to legacy. And what that means is it is one of the largest LGBT film festivals in the world and one of the largest film festivals in North America. Also, Outfest has a tremendous number of programs for young filmmakers, as well as archivists preserving gay stories for all time. It is a truly outstanding organization, and especially right now, we would love your help. Please go to outfest.org and learn how you can become a member of this fantastic organization. What films or filmmakers inspired you? Because we brought up a couple of, we brought up Alan J. Pakula, we brought up Warren Kar Wai, we brought up Clute, we brought yeah. up Black Narcissus. Um, mm-hmm. Or wait, hold on, have we talked about Black Narcissus or is that just something? We have not. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, I think you brought that up because I picked out Black Narcissus in oh, from my Criterion Channel. The Criterion That's right. Closet. Okay. okay, so you have this, okay. That's like, I, if I ever get into the Criterion Closet, I will die a happy man. Um, yes, you have a little video mm-hmm. on Criterion uh, on the YouTube where you, you pick out stuff. And I, I think you also talked about how you had a quarantine movie club and Black Narcissus yes. was one of the movies that you watched. Uh-huh. Black Narcissus is such a masterpiece. Like, talk like talk, talk about, I mean, and go back and talk about, like, the films and filmmakers that influenced you in general because I, I really want to know. Yeah, definitely. I think with, you know, Black Narcissus um, and Powell and Pressburger's work around the 40s. Um, I think what's most extraordinary about Black Narcissus is that, you know, it's shot in Technicolor, of course. And I think in the very early days of color um, cinema, the filmmakers were not necessarily, you know, using color for realism or naturalism. No. I think yeah. they were using it for emotional expressiveness and, you know, choosing certain colors for your art direction and production design and also how saturated these colors are they're you know curated very meticulously to again create that specific emotional landscape Mm -hmm. that you want to elicit in your audience and that's you know what i want to uh, do with my work as well i think because you know I'm a, I'm a Filipino filmmaker and especially art house Philippine cinema, we always associate that with one Lino Broca mm-hmm. um, back in the 70s and 80s and in the last 15 years like Brillante Mendoza and Lab Diaz and they have you know Philippine cinema has always been associated with 
the realistic style or orientation to a certain extent, whether it's, you know, social realism or neorealism. And what I want to do in my future work is, um, and where I feel like I'm gravitating, gravitating towards is lyricism Mm -hmm. and, you know, surrealism and a dreamlike sensibility. Like with Lingua Franca, I think what's emerging as my distinct style is that I, I tend to marry narratives or then themes that have a strong political impulse and underpinning with a tone that's sensuous and lush and lyrical. And dream, um, dreamlike, and, I mean, is the one yes. word that I kept thinking of when I saw your films. And certainly like with Powell and Pressburger going back to mm-hmm. A Matter of Life and Death or Life and Death of Colonel Blimp or Red, the red, shoes. red shoes. Oh my God, the yeah. Red Shoes. So, yeah, so my good. gosh. Um, you know, yes, all of these. Isabel tells you you need to go get the criteria. First of all, get the Criterion Channel if you don't have it. Mm-hmm. It's the best streaming service there, alive. And uh, treat yourself to a weekend of Powell and Pressburger movies. You will find your cinema life yes. like opened in a way that you just can't even imagine. I also am, you know, a disciple of Chantal Ackerman. I wouldn't, you know. Okay, I can see it. Now that you bring it up, I can see it. But but her work, unlike yours, her work, it feels like it's it's mostly about the watching of it. Like like Chantal Ackerman mm-hmm. de- dealt with pace and the the activity of watching a movie as a thing in and of itself. Like Jean Dielman is her, you know, masterpiece is regarded as her masterpiece. It's a four hour movie. It has very, very, very long takes. And Mm -hmm. the power of it comes from when stuff actually does happen, which, which is, which is unexpected. Like, because you're, you're in this kind of hypnotic state, you're watching this movie, but your work, Mm -hmm. although it's, each of the scenes is paced in a very deliberate way, like like kind of like the independent mm. film kind of you would imagine, like, you know, the quote unquote stereotype. The plots of each of your films, they move. I mean, they move really yeah. pretty quickly. All of your films are relatively short. Mm. They're around 90 minutes. Um and, and let's talk about Lingua Franca because I, I, was, I was saving it, but it's, it's, this is the movie that kind of puts you on the map uh, as far as, yeah. as, as the world because it got into the Venice Film Festival. Um, mm-hmm. the, the first trans woman with a film at the Venice Film Festival. Not a lot of pressure there. My God. <laughs> um, and, and you shot it in, like I read, in 16 days. Yes, you, with two pickup days. I shot Apparition in eight. I, no, you did not. Okay, I can't. Okay, I did. I can't even right now because, like, anybody who's ever been in production will hear this and be like, it, it won't matter. But anybody who has who has been in production to know to shoot a movie of a movie that works, a movie that is good, like legit good movie in eight days. It's like, did you sleep? Did you eat? Did you like? Did did the camera like what? How on earth did you do that? It was in one location, um, and simple, and that's what made it easier. That we don't, we didn't have to like, you know, do company moves. And that's like twelve because pages I was a working day, with, I know. I mean, it's, but I, just I did also the math. was. <laughs> I worked with you know actors that were really at the top of their games, and in the Philippines, 
the bread and butter of a lot of actors are soap operas. <laughs> oh, and okay. so they kind so of so they know the factory. They they know they got to just like kick it out. Yeah, because the performances yeah. in this film, and I'm thinking of the one shot in Apparition that I know you know, mm-hmm. like the long shot. Yes. with the slapping. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It, it's basically a, a, a confrontation between two characters that is almost wordless. It is one shot. It goes on for a very long time. And they just look, and one of them slaps the other, and it is phenomenally powerful. And it, it is literally all about the performance. Like the performances yeah. of these two women are just, I mean, and your entire cast, but these two women in particular are just, it, it's, it's a jaw dropper moment. And it's very, very yeah. hard because that's, that's the kind of thing that, in, you know, independent films are made fun of for kind of like the navel gazy, long take, whatever. But it's like, if you do it like this, it works. And it's like, a, again, a, like a minor miracle that you were able to capture that. Yeah. And we did it um, at two o'clock in the morning. Oh my God. In one, <laughs> in one take. <laughs> Isabel. In one take. I can't. Okay. All right. Do you have magic powers? Do you, do you do you have like uh, like rituals? Can I like get in on whatever? Oh my god! Oh my god, that's amazing. That is that is really that is really inspiring. Yeah. Honestly, like because and and let's move on to Lingua Franca because yeah, this is a film. It premiered at Venice. Um, it, it's it was in competition, um, and it got picked up by Array, uh, Ava mm-hmm. DuVernay's company, and it was sold to Netflix and. Let's talk about that whole journey because, you know, you're used to doing these movies that are very, very low budget that were shot up apparently extremely quickly, but getting amazing results and and making these amazing little gems of independent cinema for you to be on that stage and for you to be getting that kind of attention. Like, what was that like? Um, It was really quite a surreal, you know, um, journey for Lingua Franca, especially after Venice, I traveled with it, you know, all over the world for about six months. Right. And then the pandemic came out. I was actually in Paris at the time the world shut down because it was scheduled to open in French cinemas. Oh, my um, gosh. The third week of March. Oh, no. So, no. Yeah. No. Oh, no. <laughs> um, it eventually opened there in July and got great reviews and did well at the box office. But... You know, when the lockdown happened, I wasn't sure whether Lingua Franca will see the light of day in, right. in North America. And then Array, you know, approached us with an offer to distribute the film in the US and Canada. And of course, you know, it's Ava. Yeah. I we jumped at the chance and they were a true delight um, to work with. You can tell that they're really passionate um, about the filmmakers that they work with since they champion minority voices and women filmmakers and for this film to be received as warmly as it has is um truly something that i'm pleasantly surprised about and infinitely grateful because it's not your typical cliche and formulaic depiction of trans lives but that's why and it's it doesn't great i mean it's like you know yeah. basically I, and, and the amazing thing about this film is i mean because because your first film senorita was much more kind of about uh, the, the trans, the fact of being trans a, a bit more. I mean, there was mm-hmm. a plot involved, but, yeah. but Lingua Franca, you know, the transition for this character has just, has happened already. It's, it's old news mm-hmm. and it's just yeah. a fact, you know, a fact of, of yeah. this character's existence. Um, there, I mean, it is, there is a moment in the film where her love interest who uh, apparently did not know 
that she had been born male um, mm-hmm. uh, discovers this. And I felt that that was really beautifully handled. Yeah. I want to ask you about that scene and about the last, I would say, 10 minutes of Lingua Franca. Because you you paint a picture and you don't necessarily directly answer the question about what happens. Um, I mean, it's implied. I feel like I feel like I got an implication about what happens. But tell me why you feel compelled to make movies with endings that kind of leave the audience hanging a little bit. The reason why I do that is that I try to ask hopefully the right, you know, provocative questions to an audience, um, especially when their questions about social issues that remain unresolved, you know, and and unfinished, and especially in the case of Lingua Franca, where it touches on both immigration and the trans experience, you know, being trans in Trump's America, you know, I didn't want to just make a film where people can feel bad and feel pity for this trans woman and then resolve that neatly by the end of the film and so that they can go back to their comfortable lives and But you also you, know. you also didn't make the kind of typical like uh, or, or or at least stereotypical misery porn quote unquote where it's like you just have these characters and it's tragic and it's terrible and you you're just left feeling terrible like you know like we've all seen those independent films you know and some exactly. of, some of them are good a few of them are good a lot of them are not uh but you don't yeah. do that either <laughs> you don't victimize yeah. your characters but you don't mm-hmm. let them off the hook either and exactly. and the audience is left with this sense that for that character especially it could have gone any which way exactly and i wanted to make a film that haunted and lingered you know in in audiences minds the reason why olivia decided the way that she did you know and ultimately turned down the marriage offer and you know on the surface her decision to walk away might seem counterintuitive you know, for someone in her predicament, like, I mean, this could have been an easy way out, you know, and she could get married and have a green card. She would have her citizenship and her man. Right. But, you know, I'm inviting the audience to think about why she did not accept the offer. And it's because, you know, would I get married to a man that I cared about who exploited my deepest fears and anxieties? Mm-hmm. Um, and so she decided that, at the end of the day, she just wanted her agency back and to be able to determine the course of her own life, even if her immigration status remains uncertain. And, you know, it's in that moment when the audience has to think through kind of the psychological and emotional factors that weighed in as Olivia was making that decision. They're no longer seeing her as just a trans woman looking for love or an undocumented immigrant looking for papers, she's she has more layers and has more complexity as a person than that, yeah. It's because something is more important than the predicament she's in to her. And exactly. it comes back to her personal power, going back to the story of Senorita, where the character you play in that also has a very similar revelation at the end, where yeah. she is given a choice uh, and she chooses the much more difficult choice of personal power, um, you know, and, and potentially sacrificing an unimaginable consequence 
Um, yeah. Which, which is again, very powerful and going back to like issues of power and personal identity, like bring, like bringing back the power to yourself. In fact, all three of your films, if we could say is about a character who, and two of them are played by you, a character who is in a very, very difficult situation, an extremely difficult situation who makes a very difficult decision to reclaim her power. Yeah. Exactly. And in the case of Lingua Franca as well, you know, I wanted to show that a character like Olivia is more than just the sum of our intersectional identities and struggles, you know? Yeah. There's more there yeah. that I want the audience to see. She's a she's a great character. I mean, she really is. And you bring her Thank to you. life so well. And in fact, I mean, one of the amazing things about Lingua Franca is how every single one of these characters is so beautifully rendered. Um, let's talk a bit about uh, the boyfriend. Alex is his name, I think? Yes, Eamon Farron, who was in Twin Peaks The Return. Yes, <laughs> an amazing performance, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and, a, and kind of a difficult role, because it would have been very easy to either make that guy the good guy or the bad guy. Yeah. You know, he's, he's mm-hmm. a, he is a recovering alcoholic who's not doing very well at his recovery. And mm-hmm. he finds this woman, Olivia, and he finds himself feeling for her. And it's, it's just a complicated set of situations uh, and decisions that he makes, one in particular, which it would have been very easy to demonize him in that moment. Because yeah, he, exactly. he, makes, he makes a decision, and again, I don't want to give away too much, but the way you handle that, again, is one of very balanced, uh, a very balanced approach. Like, in fact, Olivia even says when she's going over it after this, this, this decision is made and, and she kind of knows how shitty it is, like, he's a good yeah. person. I, you know, I like to think that I'm making films to understand people and not to judge them. You know? um, and I think especially in Lingua Franca, we are kind of at a cultural moment where it's easier to villainize and demonize certain people. And of course, you know, what the actions that uh, Alex does is truly quite, you know, morally reprehensible. But I'm also trying to be a humane and empathetic filmmaker. Right. And I think that's what makes the film moving in that we're not just portraying people, you know, the characters as like black and white heroes and villains and but i'm trying to flesh out characters that are truly complex and um complicated and that whether it's olivia or alex they're very much influenced by the milieu that they're in by the people the community that surrounds them and in alex's case you know he's a third generation russian jewish immigrant to the u.s and when you're in a russian community even in the united states it can tend to be quite conservative or you know sexist and homophobic a lot of toxic masculinity basically exactly and you know his irresponsible actions and through the middle part of the film are influenced by that upbringing but we see in the second half of the film his attempt to slowly and gradually overcome them and that is what I think makes Lingua Franca and its characters truly quite poignant, you know, and, and moving in that sense. I do have to confess something, though. In Senorita, you do just have a bad guy. 
I kind of like, I kind of, I, I kind of like you, the bad guy. I kind of like you writing bad guys. It's like I'm, I'm all for, you know. It's like yes, I, I love the, the, the complex characters, but it's just like, I, I kind of just personally just want you to throw in a bad guy next time. Just like make him, make him a terror. Like because the mobster in that first film is just like, oh, you're so bad. You're such an awful person. It's like so dramatic, and it's like you know, in Lingua Franca, I kind of, yeah. I almost kept waiting for um, somebody to show up and be like terrible and be like well alex's good friend is kind of like a, a villain oh he is he's terrible in yes. that sense like a textbook villain yeah. in that sense yeah well he, well, he yeah he, he yes he's he's awful and irredeemable yeah. um mm-hmm. yeah i yeah oof oof so t- <laughs> <laughs> so let's this was nominated for the John Cassavetes Award at the 2021 Film yeah. Independent Spirit Awards, which is a, a huge honor. Totally. Did you did, yeah. did you go and to the what, awards? I mean, I don't remember. Did they have them in person? I don't even remember. Um, no, just virtually. But what makes this nomination really special, aside from the fact that it's the John Cassavetes Award, it's the best you know fe- feature film shot for under under five hundred thousand yes. dollars. Initially, you know, there was a point in the pre-production of Lingua Franca where the budget you know, was like up to 1 million, 1.5 million. And I kind of stepped in. It was just under 500K because I insisted like, you know, listen, I don't need 1.5 million to make this film. Like, have you seen, you know, have you read the script? And it's also about an undocumented Filipino trans woman. Um, and I also wanted the film to really showcase my ingenuity as a storyteller. I want the audiences to watch this film and see how you know beautifully it's shot, and then be shocked to learn that it's not shot for millions of dollars. It's and it's it's that's beautiful. Why. It's gorgeous. But I have Thank to you. say, you want to be an auteur? Okay, let's talk because I, I, <laughs> I'm currently doing a documentary, and one of the things I'm researching and, and talking to are a lot of the auteurs of the '70s, and none mm-hmm. of them, absolutely none of them, would have been like. I don't want to shoot this for 20 million. I'll shoot it for two. No, 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 no. Next time you're offered 1.5 million, you'd be like, three would be better. Like say that with me. Just like to say three would be better. Take the money. <laughs> three would be better. Exactly. <laughs> I would love to see, like, and I can't wait because I know you have this film that you're writing right now mm-hmm. that won a, t- uh, it, you, the script for it, I believe won a talent highlight award at the Berlinale. So you got a little grant. Yes. Um, it's called Tropical Gothic. I know nothing about it. You don't have to tell us what it's about mm. if you don't want to. But I so, so want to see what you will do with like 1.5 million or, or 3 million or 5 million. Because, I, you know, <laughs> the, 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 the leaps that you're taking with every one of your works is so significant. And I want to talk about the short film Shangri-La you, you did for mm-hmm. Mew Mew, which is on the YouTube channel, which is like visually just like out of out of. It's crazy. It's amazing. It's it's yeah. so different than mm-hmm. everything you've done. So, do you yeah. can you tell us a bit about Tropical Gothic? Yeah, definitely. Um, Tropical Gothic is set in the 16th century in the Philippines, very early on during the Spanish colonial regime, and it's my own riff on Hitchcock's Vertigo. Oh my. Okay. I'm, so I, you don't even have to say anymore. That... I'm there. That's fantastic. But but wait, it's a period yeah, piece. It is. Yeah, it's set in the 16th century and. It really subverts that male, I think Vertigo is the quintessential male gaze. Oh, it's very male gaze. Um, it's, 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 it's extremely, like, that movie is all male yeah. gaze. That's the whole and movie. And it's very telling that it topped the 2012 
sight and sound poll for like the best films it ever did. made. It did. It bumped. It bumped. Yeah. Uh, it bumped Citizen Kane, which is also oh, a wow. little bit male gazy. And yeah, it's about this native Filipino priestess because you know when the Spaniards arrived, they really seized all the property and the farmland from the natives. Mm-hmm. So it's about this Filipino native Filipino priestess who pretends to be possessed by the spirit of her Spanish master's dead bride in order to psychologically manipulate him into giving back her land. Oh, that's fantastic. But I want you to say, like, next, when they offer you five million, be like, ten, ten, million. W- ten would be better. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> ten would be better. Yes. I'm so glad if I get, like... <laughs> but you're also, you're also developing for television, right? Yes. Um, I... It's been announced I'm developing a series with FX. It's a crime drama involving... Nuns and queer hustlers. Oh my god! Surprise, surprise. Oh my god! That's is it. Is it present day? <laughs> it's present day. It's set in LA, which have, where I've never lived in before. But I had the audacity to propose it. But for some reason, FX said, "Wow, we like the idea." So. <laughs> are you gonna Are you gonna come out here? Are you gonna do some uh, some some research? Because I I I am an evangelist for LA. I lived in New York for oh. fifteen years, mm-hmm. and then I moved out here. And I love New York, but I really love LA. My fiance and I were there for Memorial Day weekend because we're planning to move to LA at the end of the year. <gasps> congratulations and congratulations Thank on your you. engagement. I wanted to ask because Thank you. one of the things that like, you know, all filmmakers kind of talk about in and of themselves, and of course we don't have to talk about it if you don't want to, is how challenging it can be to have relationships, especially when you're in production after production or you're, you're in development. It's a whole world and it envelops you. And it's difficult sometimes to, to not just date, but like if you find somebody to like, you know, make it work. You know, the world shut down last March of last year. Uh-huh. I was in New York at that time. By early June, I moved down here to Raleigh to stay with my cousin and his partner and a month later, I met uh, my boyfriend at the time through a dating app during a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> and we we just got engaged a few weeks. Oh, my God. That's so great. Oh, my God. Like, okay, so oh my God. I, I'm... I just want to tell the audience, I, we're we're zooming, like you know, we're right now. So I'm looking at Isabel, like when I brought, mm-hmm. like when she brought up the fiance, she started to glow, like like your entire body language changed, and it was the cutest thing ever. You suddenly like you know, so you're in the you're in the giggle love moment right now. Yes, we are, um, and it's funny because like, I feel like we are meant for each other because we've been living with each other since November, and we've. Pretty much been together for twenty four seven, and, and you the fact that we're other. not trying to kill each other yet, just yet. And he's a big anime fan, so now I'm gonna start getting into cosplay. Oh <laughs> no! Wait, what? Are, what are you gonna oh, cosplay? I want to know. I'll let you know when we decide. <laughs> but you know what I'm excited about is I'm planning to attend the Cannes Film Festival next month. Oh my god! So that will be my real return to you know being in a movie theater and like one of the biggest. And most, you know, prestigious screens, you know, to watch a movie at. Do they dress to the nines at Venice? Yes. I, you know, when I was at Venice, I, Marquesa uh, dressed me because I have a friend who is there. But for Cannes, I most likely will be wearing Yu Mew. (gasps) Very nice. (laughs) Yeah. 
Well, anyway, Isabel, it was so lovely to talk to you. I really encourage everybody listening to this to check out your movies. Senorita and Apparition are both on Criterion Channel, along with a really lovely 10-minute introduction to you so they can see your face. And, and you have a lovely, it's a lovely conversation. And then Lingua Franca is on Netflix. And then uh, Shangri-La, your 10-minute short, is on the Mew Mew YouTube channel. And uh, so yes. it's, it's, it's a really fantastic body of work already. And I cannot wait to see what you come up with next. You know, not to mention which, you know, the kind of visibility you're bringing to trans filmmakers and LGBT filmmakers in general. It's amazing. Thanks so much, Dave. And yeah, I, I can't wait to start making my next movie. Isabel, thank you so much for being on The Outcast. I so appreciate it. And thank you for having me here. It was such a fun and um, delightful conversation. And this has been The Outcast, presented by Outfest. For more, go to outfest.org slash theoutcast. The Outcast is executive produced by Alan Konigsberg, David Kittredge, and Ismail El-Sharif. Special thanks to Damien Navarro, Daniel Crook, and the entire Outfest team. Music by West One Music Group. Mixed by Craig Lawrence Smith. For more information about Outfest, the film festival, the programs, and all the ways that you can help support LGBT voices, go to outfest.org. The Outcast is a production of Milton Ventures Media and Triple Fire Productions. I'm David Kittredge. Thank you so much for listening, and catch you next time. Hey.